good to have you guys be a part of this. We planned, of course, something much different, much like everything you planned for this year. It all has changed, but that's okay because we're going to look back at this year, I hope, and recognize that all the strange things that happened, all the change of plans, and even the parking lot Christmas kids choir are going to go, I remember that. And I hope you remember this year, at least in December, as the best Christmas that you've ever had, at least in your own mind, in your own heart. Not because we've had a great year, because of course we haven't. I actually hope that it's because we had such a tumultuous year that this particular Christmas becomes the most profound. Because in all of that's been going on with the rules and the mandates and the courts and the city councils and the CDC and the Supreme Court and the governor and the governments and all the debates and the confusion and the arguments and all of the riots that you say, well, if I really think about what Christmas is all about, I realize that, I mean, the whole point of it is the solution to all of that, very specifically the solution to it all. Because if you think back to what the prophet said in a hundred different ways, it can be distilled well into the verse we often quote at Christmas time, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, when it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, you know the next line? And the government will rest on his shoulder. One person, a singular person, the government, the government, think about that, executive leadership over a group of people, the government will rest on his shoulder. And of the increase of his government, the next verse goes on to say, and of peace, there will be no end. So here is a government that's going to be not just over Israel, not just over a spiritual group of people in a church, but the increase of his government, the pervading expanse of his government, there can be no end. As Psalm 2 says, the nations will be given to the Son as a heritage. He'll have it all as his reward, and he will rule over the nations. I mean, that's a big, big statement if you think about it. No voting, right? No balance of power, no Congress, no Senate, no Supreme Court. None of that. You've got a singular leader. We usually call that a dictator or a despot. When you learn New Testament Greek and you read about Jesus in the New Testament, you come across a word in Greek that is transliterated into English, despot. Often you think about a despot, a dictator, you think, well, they're evil, right? Because absolute power corrupts absolutely, as it's often been said. Well, that's true in the human heart. When human beings get a chance to exercise absolute power, it does tend to corrupt. I mean, that's a problem we have. That's why all the dictators around the world are usually uh, filled with all kinds of compromise and hypocrisy and greed and abuse. We see that all the time. But here we have a singular leader that was promised to come into space and time. And, of course, the prophet said he would... 2,000 years ago, be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2 says, right, out of Bethlehem will come forth a ruler, a ruler, a political ruler, a leader, and he will have the entirety of the authority of earth resting on his shoulders, and the reason that's going to be a kingdom of justice and peace and mercy is because he's good. He's the only good one. All of us, the problem of the Scripture says, have gone astray. We're like sheep that just want to go after our own way. No one really follows the right path, not perfectly, but there is one, the God who made us, the God who made the rules said, I can take on humanity, I will live among you, and I can be your leader. The problem is, of course, you look at Christianity, you think, well, those are a lot of bloviated promises, it seems like, that just have never come true. Where's the promise of the peace and the justice and the mercy and no riots and everyone getting along under the leadership of this executive called Christ? Where, where is that? 
well, we don't have it. We really don't. Even though it was announced when Jesus was being born, it was announced that, as it echoes Isaiah chapter 9, that the government would rest on his shoulders, that he would assume the throne of his father, David, that he would be this great leader. It, it, it never materialized. It just didn't. And it didn't not become reality because God failed. As a matter of fact, if I go back to that Isaiah 9 passage, the next verse says, it is the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord. That's a weird word. Think about the zeal accomplishing something. Right? His zeal or his jealousy that he is so intent upon it, he's so resolved upon it for the good of the object, in this case, the nations of the world. He's so concerned and so loving and so protective of them. He doesn't want the other despots leading. He doesn't want all the people in chaos and all this tumult on the world. He, he wants it so much he's going to accomplish the fact that one person, the son born, is going to have all of the government rest on him. He says, I'm, I'm absolutely committed to that. And this is what most people miss. And the Old Testament prophets, prophets they certainly missed it. God did not give them this scene between the coming of Christ to deal with us as individual sinners and the coming of Christ to set up this kingdom that he talked about. And now it's been 2,000 years. We've had a gap for 2,000 years where God says, yes, I'm going to send my son and he will be the king and he will rule the world and the government will rest upon his shoulders, but uh, he's not going to take his great power and begin to reign until he does something in between, which is what our church is all about and what every good church is all about, and that is getting our hearts aligned with him and saying he's the good shepherd, he's the good leader, he's the good administrator, and while the world is not interested in following him, you and I should be right now, we should submit to Jesus as our Lord. There's another political word, our king, our leader, our governor, the one in charge. We should put him in charge in our lives even when the world is not following him, even when everyone else is not following him. And Jesus says, I'm going to collect this, this flock. I'll be the shepherd. I'll collect this flock. We want that flock to grow as big as it can grow so that when I come back to establish my kingdom, I won't have to kick out as many rebels. I'll have a lot of people that are willing and ready to come under my leadership. And that's the thing about the kingdom that God is building He's building it individual by individual of people that come and recognize, I am wayward. I do my own thing. I see how human beings, when they follow their own desires, it does not end up resulting in righteousness and peace. And so I'll submit to Christ. My, li my life and my heart on the interior will be made right. Then I'll have to live in a world that's really antithetical to that. It opposes that. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, the world's going to be filled with wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and pestilence, right? Viral pandemics, all that's going to be happening. But you get your heart right with me, align yourself with me, joyfully and willingly submit to my leadership. And then one day, I'll bring the kingdom. I'll come and I'll set up and establish the kingdom where I'll take, here's how it's put in the book of Revelation, my great power and begin to reign. Right now, he only reigns in one place. He reigns in heaven. That's why we're to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not done here. We're praying in the little corners of our world, the pockets of our influence, that maybe God's will will be done better this week. That's what we're praying for. But in reality, Jesus said it's going to be a lot of opposition. You're going to have to, to like swim upstream against the culture. The culture, as it follows its own desires and dictates, it'll end in chaos and corruption. But you keep following me. It'll be a narrow road. It'll be a small gate. But the flock of God will join this flock, this group, this, peop this people of citizens of the king, and they'll go through that 
narrow portal. While a lot of people would be saying that's the wrong way to go, you're on the wrong side of history. You're following some ancient book, some ancient person, a prophet that never turned out to be who he said he would be. But Jesus, after saying in Matthew 24, the world, before we get to the end, he says, don't be alarmed. That's got to happen. The end's not yet. He then says in chapter 25, but I will come back. I will come back with glory, with the angels, and I will sit on my glorious throne. Some people, unfortunately, think Christianity is all about this. Just coming together as a church, kind of recognizing that God exists, that He created us, kind of worship Him, try to stay out of trouble, and there's the Christian life. This is all about just simply getting a bunch of people to come together to submit their hearts to the King so that we can get ready for the coming of the kingdom. It is such a big motif in Scripture. It's such a big emphasis of prophecy. God is going to change out this world, and that should make us really happy that one day the government will rest on one person's shoulder, and we will all willingly and joyfully say, finally, we get to, to have a world the way it was supposed to be. It's called a new heaven and a new earth. It's coming. There's several little points and phases and chapters of this end time plan that God has laid out. But the end of it is Christ finally comes and sits in a place in a real palace, in a real city, in a real planet. The rebels who have chosen to shine him on and say, I don't want anything to do with him. I want to do my own thing. Unfortunately, will be barred from that place. But those of us that have put our trust in him, who've seen our hearts as wayward in repentance, saying, I need to be right with this king. God's going to take those people and have them inhabit this kingdom. The saints of the kingdom will reign with Christ, and everything will be as it ought to be. No chaos, no rebellion, no riots. The extent and increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. That's a great promise. And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. That is really what we sing about, even though it doesn't look like what we're singing about it ever happened, because in fact, in one sense, it never did. We sing about a king, we sing about bowing down, we sing about him being some great fulfillment of prophecy, and yet we don't see that, because it hasn't externally happened. I hope, though, it's internally happened for you, but now we're looking forward to the fulfillment of our faith. As Paul said, one day our faith, our trust in this king will be sight, we'll see it. 1 John 3 says, one day we'll see the king face to face. Paul says, we see now through a glass dimly. We're looking through some foggy porthole, but one day he'll arrive. And according to Zechariah chapter 14, his feet will stand on the mount that's east of Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives. And it'll be a day that is unique, unlike any other. And he will rule the nations. That's the promise of the Bible. Most people think it's about morals and ethics and keeping your kids off of drugs and being a better person that doesn't cuss or whatever you might think Christianity is. Christianity is about getting a citizenry, a, a, a flock together, a group of people that say, I'm with him, I'm with the king. And I can't wait for him to replace this world with the next world. People say, well, you're going to be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. As C.S. Lewis said, we're really no earthly good at least according to what God says is good, until we are heavenly minded. And we've got to think about that. We've got to think of what it means to live for the next life. And if all we're concerned about is our comfort and convenience, right? We're saying, that doesn't matter. I can sit in a parking lot and do church for the rest of my life. It, whatever. We can, we can dodge cars in the street if we have to. What matters is that one day Christ will reign, and I want to make sure I'm ready for that in my own heart. Repenting of my wayward sinfulness. Trusting in the king's leadership. And saying, I know he can take care of my sin problem, and one day he will establish 
the kingdom that he will personally and uniquely and singularly uphold. When I was a kid and I would hear that verse in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 about the government resting on his shoulders, I would think of that image that I saw many times of Atlas, not the book of maps, but the, the Greek mythological titan, the god, Atlas. Because as you can envision in your mind, you see him there, the super strong guy who's holding the sphere on his shoulders. Most people think it's the earth. I used to think that's what he was holding the earth. But in Greek mythology, it talks about the fact that he's actually upholding this picture, this symbol of the heavens, actually. And I used to think he was just kind of showing off how strong he was, right? That's just like somebody you know, flexing his muscles and saying, look what I can do. Well, if you know Greek mythology, it was that Zeus had punished him for losing a battle and he was consigned the, the penalty of having to hold the sphere of heaven. My view of connecting Isaiah 9-6 to that would, couldn't be more off. I guess in the sense it's right only insofar as right now Christ does hold heaven up on his shoulders. The administration of the king is being realized in one place. His will is done in heaven. But one day, he's going to add to the other shoulder, if you will. He's going to add earth. And the government will rest on his shoulders, the governments of earth. And it won't be a penalty that he's in some uh, drudgery, in some kind of consignment, conscription, uh, having to do it because he's in trouble. He will joyfully do it. As a matter of fact, the picture of him leading is like a shepherd leading his flock. And Isaiah says he takes up the lambs in his arms. The picture couldn't be more idyllic than when Christ is ruling and reigning, not as a dictator, an evil dictator, but as a loving despot, one who has no rivals, where there's no rioting in the streets, where the increase of his oversight, his leadership, his government, and of his peace, there's no end. In a chaotic year like 2020, I hope Christmas can become much more meaningful to you, obviously more than presents and lights and kids' choirs. It's really about what the kids sang about this morning. It's about us in our own hearts bowing down to a king who's yet to realize the administration of the government of this world. And if you can prepare your hearts for that, then we'll be ready. And we'll pray with the early church. They had a little Aramaic phrase, Maranatha, which meant come quickly. They were obedient to Christ because they prayed that prayer. Your kingdom come. That's how they would talk to God. Your kingdom come, please. Your will be done on earth. We need it done here as it is in heaven. And we know that's not going to fully happen until he comes back. So they would cry out that Aramaic phrase, Maranatha. I hope in your hearts this Christmas, you have a much more palpable desire to see the king return. This time, not as a lowly savior in a manger, but as he put it in Matthew 25, breaking through the sky as a king coming in glory with his angels and sitting on his glorious throne. That's going to happen, and when it happens, you don't get a chance at that point to make up your mind. you got to do that now. Christ has given 2,000 years for successive generations to get right with him, and the call goes out through the church, who in this particular generation, in this corner of the world, happens to be sitting in parking lots all over America, saying, trust him, see your sin, Become his citizen, his follower. Be a part of his flock. And then you'll be on the right side of history, all right. We have, uh, as Pastor Mark said, put together some special things out here in the courtyard. If you didn't see it coming in, we got a lot of snow um, that you can write your East Coast friends and tell them you had snow at church in Southern California. And there's sledding. 
and there's a revival of our hospitality ministry, which today we drafted our pastors and our ministry leaders and our office workers, our admins. They're all out there serving. They're gloved up with their masks on and uh, serving donuts and hot chocolate and coffee. So we would love for you to stick around. And I know that sometimes uh, you guys are good, especially in the last few months of racing off to your cars and peeling out in your sanitized driving machine. But I would ask you today to take a risk and come and hang out with us. Let your kids play in the bounce houses out here. And even if you don't have kids, come out and watch a snowball fight. Don't stand too close if you don't want to get hit. Hang out. You see the kids that sang up here. Be sure to thank them for their uh, Sunday afternoons that they've invested in learning those songs and all those motions. And uh, just spend some time here with your church family. If you're visiting, we're so glad that you visited. We hope you would come back. We're going to start a series of Christmas messages and a themed Christmas series of, of events. So please come back and visit with us. We'll probably be here in the parking lot, I assume. I don't know. Things change every hour. But um, we hope you might come back and be a part of our regular services here at Compass. So thanks for coming. Let me pray for you. Maybe I'll get Joseph back up to sing one more quick Christmas carol, and then I hope you linger here in uh, another parking lot, as Pastor Mark said. We have all kinds of parking lots you've yet to see, several parking lots. So let's pray together. God, we are thankful for our kids this morning. I say that corporately. These are our kids, They, kids that we love, kids that we pray for, kids that we can't wait to see what you do as their hearts get increasingly informed and convicted of even their own waywardness, just like we are, convicted that we need you, we need a Savior, we need, we need forgiveness. We need to look at our hearts honestly through the lens of your word and see that we are not righteous. We are not just, we're not merciful, we're not loving the way that we should be. And in confession, we want our kids to grow up to a place where they are sold out to the Savior who has given his life for them, that your son who died for them will become their Lord and their King, and that they'll make a difference in this world on that narrow road, pressing through, even as Jesus said, that narrow door, because they love you and they care about your coming kingdom. And even while the world shouts that they're on the wrong road, we want them to be on the right road, not just to being moral good kids. But we want them to grow up being effective messengers of your message that the King is coming. That the son that was born 2,000 years ago is not just a spiritual shepherd, but he's the political monarch of the world. And one day we'll come back and assume that position. So get us ready for that, Lord, and get our kids ready for that. May we all listen more carefully to the lyrics of Christmas songs this December. Just remember that this is all about something that's much bigger and perhaps in years past we've recognized. So thank you for the gift of music. Thanks for the gift of our children. Thanks now as we dismiss in just a moment for the gift of fellowship and just having donuts and coffee together. And I just pray it'd be a good, good middle of our uh, Sunday. You'd be honored by it. We think carefully about the profound issues that we've talked about here just briefly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.